Let's remember to pray throughout the week. We join our hearts together in public prayer. Uh, when anyone is praying, we want to join our hearts in that. But then pray throughout the week and uh, remember the Schmidt. So, man, good to see you all here. Are we okay? Do we need to set up another table? That's a great uh, question to ask there. And uh, you know what, uh, Jim, you look like an able-bodied man. Would you do that for us? And uh, what a great problem to have, amen? Hey, wonderful. I'll say to you new lifers, like I did to the church last Sunday on New Year's Eve, first Sunday of the year, uh, congratulate yourself. You have perfect attendance in the new life class for this year. Now, wait a minute. You're supposed to be excited. You have perfect attendance in the new life class. So congratulate one another. Okay, yeah, yeah, turn around, get a little, little fist bump and that thing, and uh, let me encourage you to keep it up. Uh, all right, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Your Bible ought to start, you know, just like opening up to that page automatically. So turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. We're picking up where we left off. I know we picked up some new people. Some of you, this is your, uh, I get a kick out of Jerry. We talked to him. He said that uh, he taught on Ephesians for the last end of the last six weeks of the year. And, of course, Ephesians chapter 1 deals with election, predestination. He covered it in a whopping five minutes. So that maybe you're going to wish Jerry was teaching this class. He covered that in five minutes, but he did encourage the youth, you know, you could uh, come up here for the more in-depth. So you're definitely getting the in-depth. We're going to pick up where we left off. If you're new or you only saw the last couple lessons or you only heard the last couple lessons, then go to glenwoodconnection.org. Go to this series title. There's a real cool way you can flip through, just like on iTunes, all the preaching and teaching. So they're all mixed in together. You can find the messages on the series. I would encourage you to do that. Uh, the study notes are there. You can listen. You can study. You can study with other, with, with a friend of yours or whatever, someone else in class. Work through this material. And so we're going to pick up where we left off from there. But before we do have a special treat for you. It's the first Sunday of our class for the year, and uh, I've asked Kirk to do a song, and uh, it's interesting. It, it, it's a song that's about election and the mystery, the mystery of God's majestic mission of mercy. And uh, this doctrine, doctrine is meant to edify. Doctrine is meant to grow you, and doctrine is a basis for prayer uh, and praise. And so this is going to be an example of that. And later on in this series, we may even pull out, there's tons and tons of hymns uh, that exalt the glory of God that we're studying about in Romans 9. So, Kirk, thanks for doing this and uh, uh, worship with him as he sings. All right. All right. God is mysterious.
treasures of His bright designs to work His sovereign will. You are mysterious, my Lord, yet You reveal to me Your Word. So come and take away my anxious fears. It's all for good. So dry these tears. You are mysterious, my Lord. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a Sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. You are mysterious. Lord, yet you reveal to me your word, so come and take away my anxious fears, it's all for good, so dry these tears, you are mysterious, my Lord. Fear not, you saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you often dread are filled with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Don't judge the Lord by feeble sense. But trust Him for His grace Behind a frowning providence He hides His smiling face You are mysterious, my Lord Yet You reveal to me Your Word So come and take away my anxious fears. It's all for good, so dry these tears. You are mysterious, my Lord. Father, we come and let you feel your word to pray that you would open our hearts, that we would hupakuo, we would place ourselves under what we hear today. And in that, Lord, we would see you in a greater way and realize our need of you in a greater way here on the first new life class of a new year. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you, Kirk. Wasn't that good? Amen. Good stuff. Good stuff. We'll do that again next week and we'll have the words for you in 
and you can uh, follow along and, and learn that and see that a little better. Well, you have at the top of your notes uh, a summary of the last 11 weeks. So, Jerry, there you go. Uh, you, you didn't need to be here. All you had to do is look at that chart. And there's Romans 9. We finished Romans 9 at the end of the year. And so, again, because some of you, this is your first time back, and some of you were just in the last ones, I want you to see an overview there a little bit. Romans, we're going to go through Romans 10 and 11 here at the first part of this year. And 9, 10, 11 answer one question, and it's there at the top of your chart. The crucial question is this. Has God's word, his saving promises to Israel, failed in light of the fact that so many Jews have rejected Christ and are doomed to eternal punishment. You'll never understand Romans 9 through 11 until you understand its connection with Romans 8. Romans 8 ends with all these glorious promises of God that we as believers in Christ are eternally secure. All things work together for good, as Kirk just sang about. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because those whom he foreknew, he predestined, and those he predestined, he called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. Wonderful promises, except it should raise a question in our minds. God made these very same and very similar promises to his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. And yet when Christ came, the vast majority of Jews rejected him and still reject him to this day. Well, if God made these grand and glorious promises to Israel, what should we as Christians uh, think if he's making the same promise? Because here, let me, I, I thought about this and, and, and just it, it came to me this way. If Israel's sin and unbelief was great enough to set aside God's promises to them, what makes you and I think that our sin and our unbelief is any less? In other words, if their sin and unbelief set aside God's promises, then so can mine, and all of a sudden I'm not eternally secure. Well, Romans 9 through 11 is going to answer that question, and as you see in the chart, he does begin to answer it. It's unfolded, and we want to begin, uh, the chart just gives you the answer. The answer is going to be in all three chapters. This chart just gives us the answers as we have seen it in chapter 9. And you see on the left hand of your chart, there's uh, four questions that are either outright asked or implied. Then you have the answer is summarized there in the middle. And then on the right, I have the, uh, the objections that are being raised to Paul's answers. And so you see the first question is, has God's word failed? As, did it fail? Is that why Israel is in unbelief? Notice the answer, no. God's promise of salvation is rooted in God's sovereign, unconditional choice. God's salvation is not ultimately based on our choices, but on God's choices. Therefore, Israel can choose to reject Christ, and that does not hinder God's promises. It does not hinder God's purposes. So the objection there is, has somehow God's word failed? And Paul says, no, the failure is not God's because salvation is rooted in unconditional election. But the moment you say that salvation is based on God's choice, ultimately, more than my choice, the issue of fairness is raised. That's not fair. And so the question becomes, is God unfair in choosing unconditionally? Choosing not on the basis of our choice of him, but choosing on the basis of his own character, his own nature, his own gracious 
righteousness? The, uh, the summarized answer is this. No, unconditional election reflects the perfection of God's character in all its, full, in all its fullness. In other words, God is just to not save everyone, and God is awesomely merciful to save any, especially me. All right? But that raises the question of, or the objection of fatalism. Well, if God, no one resists God's will, and if God is so sovereign that ultimately what he wants to accomplish is accomplished, regardless of me and my choices, then what right does he have to hold us accountable for our choices? Fair enough? Fair enough. Paul answers, no, that question's not fair. <laughs> Here's what he says. Is God unreasonable to hold us accountable for our choices if no one resists his will? No. Who are we to question God's sovereign right to accomplish his own purposes as our creator and redeemer? He says, no, God is God. We are not. He's wiser. He's greater. He is capable of doing whatever he wishes as long as it's consistent with his character without consulting us. But then he goes on and says this, unconditional election reveals the riches of God's glorious mercy against the backdrop of his long-suffering wrath. And I would just, that's the heart of Romans 9. That's the heart of Romans 9. And here's how I have, have summarized that and made sense of that in my own life, and it's this. God is just to condemn the deserving. God is just to condemn the deserving. And God is unbelievably merciful to save the undeserving. And that's really what the heart of Romans 9 is. God is just to choose to condemn those who are sinners to everlasting eternal hell in light of his glorious eternal character. But God is equally merciful and even abundantly so to save some who are all equally undeserving. And so there's the heart of it. It answers fatalism. This is not a God who is far away going eeny, meeny, miny, mo. You are saved, you are not. This is not a distant God of Islam. This is a very personal, loving, gracious, yet just and holy God who is vitally involved with his creation, vitally concerned, and working out his purposes according to his sovereign election. Therefore, the final uh, implied question is this. Should we conclude that there is no need for faith? And Paul answers, no. Unconditional election results in God's saving promises being fulfilled to all peoples, not just Jews, but also Gentiles. This isn't based on who your daddy is. This isn't based on what church you used to go to. This isn't based on your behavior. This isn't even based ultimately on your belief. It's not based on what you ultimately do. It's based on who God ultimately is. And notice, unconditional election results in his promises, saving promises being fulfilled by grace through faith in Christ without eliminating human responsibility. Is there room for faith in Christ in God's sovereign election? Yes. How do you work those together? Mystery. Didn't Kirk just say, God, you are mysterious, and yet you reveal your word to us. 
And that's what he's done in Romans 9. So there you go, Romans 9. You got it. Now, remember, the question is being answered from a God-centered perspective and not a man-centered one. Here's another sentence that, for me, helps me to understand the biblical revelation. You know, if you don't like this, you want to word it differently, you're free to do this. This isn't scripture. This is my understanding of, of, of my study of not only Romans 9, but the scriptures. Notice what it says. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are not equals. If you got in an arm wrestling match with God, it is not going to be a standoff. And so today we're going to talk about balance. The balance between God's sovereignty and the balance between human responsibility. And when we talk about balance, it's not an equal balance. You know, if there's an arm wrestling contest between God and us, he will quickly win. So these two things are not equal. But notice the rest of the sentence. Because the Bible clearly exalts God's sovereignty over human responsibility. Listen, you don't want your choices to be equal to God's power. This would not be good. This would not be good. Romans 8, 28, for all things work together for good for those who love God and are called. The only reason that works is because God's sovereignty is greater than human responsibility. But notice what else it says. If you leave off the last part, you'll miss it. But God does so. But God does so in a way that does not eliminate human responsibility. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. But there you go. Now, we've been walking a tightrope in teaching this. We've been walking a tightrope. So I wanted to give you this image of what we have been doing here in teaching this doctrine between human uh, sovereignty or uh, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. So let's take a look. Why did you do this? There is no way. I dream of conquering beautiful stages. It was not a dream anymore. It was tangible. The whole plan was in the making. We want to succeed, we don't want to fail. It was a very ambitious pursuit. It just sounded like a really fun adventure. The basic plan was very simple. I knew there was going to be a team in each tower. We had ID cards. Fear was in the air. I assumed that we were all going to be arrested. Everybody was going to die. If I die, what a beautiful death. And I know my fate has been written now. This is probably the end of my life. Now I'm going to perform. I saw this thing falling down. I said to myself, he might be dead. The awe of the event, it was magical, profound. Everybody was spellbound in the uh, watching of it. Figured I was watching something that somebody else would never see again in the world. There is somebody out there in a tightrope walk between the two towers of the World Trade Center. Right at the tippy top. Right at the tippy top. Wow, can you imagine? It's just kind of eerie seeing the Twin Towers in the first place. But then also, um, as that uh, New York police officer says, I'm seeing something that will never be seen again. Well, he, he didn't even know what he was really saying and how true that is. Philippe Petit uh, got up there, and, uh, and literally they said for nearly an hour, 
was dancing on that wire. Now, he can say what he wants about falling off of that into a beautiful death, but I'm sorry, uh, I don't think so, because it is critical, it is critical when you're walking a tightrope that if you get off to one extreme or another, it is deadly. And if you've ever heard of the Flying Wallendas, how many of you ever heard of them? Very famous, the patriarch Carl Wallenda. Um, we had the privilege, Gwen and Amber and I, when we were in Branson, uh, I guess last year it was, to see the Wallenda family. They perform without nets. Now, they were, they were in, a, in a building, but I'm telling you, it was far enough to break your neck, and it, I, I just, it, it just freaked me out that they're doing all this, and they did their famous pyramid act. Well, here you can see the deadly and dra- drastic consequences of being imbalanced. Two high-rise hotels. Carl is 10 stories up, and as usual, he's working without a net. It's an act the seasoned veteran has done countless times. Almost halfway across, the wire starts to sway. Carl tries to sit. He slips. The fall kills him. All right, I know that's that's pretty brutal, but it's real. And that's what happens when you do tightrope walking and you lose your balance. Now, why do I want that image in your mind? Because we're going through, we've been going through a chapter in Romans 9 that is, in essence, like walking a tightrope. The Word of God is the tightrope. And if we go to one extreme and overemphasize man's responsibility, it will be just as tragic for us as it was for Carl Walinda, who at 73 plunged to his death. At the same time, as we walk this tightrope of God's text there in Romans 9, if we go to the other extreme, did you notice? I wanted you to see that picture. Could you see that counterbalance? I mean, whoa, boy, if, if he's going this way, he's got to do the counterbalance. And just It's just this back and forth. Because if we overemphasize God's sovereignty, yes, that can be done, then we will equally fall to an equally tragic death. Now, look at your notes. I have felt like we have been walking on a tightrope as we move through Romans 9. Hopefully, though, hopefully none of you have fallen off into either extreme. Hopefully we have kept a biblical balance as we move through this chapter. But that begs the question. What is the biblical balance? Okay? Some would say that what I have taught you from Romans 9 is imbalanced. I've emphasized too much of God's sovereignty. Others would say that I've been too imbalanced the other way. I promise you, you could find people saying both. You didn't emphasize sovereignty enough. You emphasize sovereignty too much. And that's the pressure of teaching something like this. That's okay, because I believe in a sovereign word, a perfect word of God, inspired scriptures. And I don't have to answer to anyone else except the tightrope of God's word and say to God, I have walked 
I have walked to the best of my ability and I've kept my balance. So someone said this, uh, a hyper-Calvinist, and a hyper-Calvinist is someone that holds an extreme view of God's sovereignty. A hyper-Calvinist is someone who does not believe like you do. And see, I like that. That's, that's really the way we are. You know what? You're extreme. Why? Because you're not believing like I believe. And I look at you and I say, well, you're extreme because you don't believe like I believe. Well, how do you settle that argument? The way you settle is you get the word of God. And you compare your views and your thinking to the word of God. So before we leave Romans 9 and we dive into Romans 10, I'd like to take one more look back at Romans 9 and try to help us see the biblical balance in this chapter so that we maintain the mystery. Because here's the thing. If you go to one extreme and overemphasize human responsibility, there's no mystery anymore. It's all based on human responsibility. And yet if you go to the other extreme and overemphasize God's sovereignty, there's still no mystery. It's all him. So I in some ways, this lesson is probably more for me than it is for you. In the sense that I've had to struggle through this. And before I leave this, I, I want to get on paper and I want to communicate to you what I'm leaving with from this chapter. And I say, as I said before, this is where I am now in my understanding. I'm open to learning. I'm open to correction. Um, I know there's room for growth in my understanding of Romans 9. If I were to say otherwise, that would be rather arrogant and foolish in light of the mystery of God's greatness. So, it's important if we lose our balance and fall off this tightrope, either way, we lose the mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And, the tra- and, and, and there will be a spiritual theological death that's just as tragic as that which you witnessed. Now, how do we maintain it? How do we maintain the balance of the mystery in Romans mind, Romans 9? I know it's obvious, but here's the answer. Stay balanced. Stay balanced to maintain the mystery of Romans 9. We, you've got to stay balanced. And you say, and that's easier said than done. Okay, did, did you walk the, watch these guys on the, now, granted, the dude, Pete, doing the world, I mean, he's looking like he's walking in the park. <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> I'm more like Walinda going through Romans 9 and trying to stay balanced. You know, one minute you're like, whoa, and then one minute, oh, I'm over here. Now, how do you stay balanced? Notice what it says. On either side of the tightrope walker, don't overemphasize human responsibility in Romans 9 to the extent that you eliminate divine sovereignty in the chapter, and yet don't overemphasize divine sovereignty to the extent that we eliminate human responsibility. I've read... In the course of studying for this lesson, I've read men who did both, okay? And, and, and I could drag all those guys out. I could uh, talk that through. I, I'm trying to avoid doing that, okay? Because uh, I, I think it's important, but that's not what we're doing here. We're trying to just look at, at expositing Romans 9. Now, what I have for you are three suggestions of how to maintain your balance in Romans 9. We'll look at two of those, uh, or at least one in, in part of two, and then we'll finish out next week on the third one. So let's, let's dive in. How do you stay balanced? Here's the first thing. Number one, allow Paul to focus on what the Holy Spirit led him to write. Allow Paul to focus on what the Holy Spirit led him to write. And the basis for that is found in the two classic scriptures that, tell us that the word of God is God's word, not man's. 
Amen? I know this is kind of obvious, but I think this is the way, this is where we've got to get our hearts orientated. You know, the first thing you do when you get out on that tightrope is, first of all, you establish the tightrope. The reason Walinda, what happened was they, they, yes, there was wind, but the guide wires were not secure. That which he was walking on was shaky and unstable. Listen, if you're going to come to Romans 9 and think the Bible is shaky and unstable, you're going to fall off to an extreme. So the first thing to establish is God's word is inspired and it says what he says. And I should, and I know I keep you, if you don't know what Hupakuo is, go see the series, glenwoodconnection.org, Hupakuo. We need to place ourselves under what we hear in the word of God. If you're not ready to do that, you're going to struggle with Romans 9. You're going to struggle with God's sovereignty if you're not ready to submit to it. And so let's look at 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21. 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21 says this. Knowing this, first of all, I like this. First of all, this is a priority, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So what that applies to Romans 9 is, this isn't Paul's thinking, this is God's thinking. All right? Notice what it says. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But, now, see, right there, that's sovereignty. You would think God has, uh, man has no part in it. But then notice the next part, but men spoke. (laughs) But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So they had a part in it. Their personality is there. Paul's not Peter. Peter's not Paul. And they're both not John. And yet what they wrote was written according to the will of God. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Turn your Bible, 2 Timothy 3. 16 and 17. And notice what this says. All scripture, all scripture, that would include Romans 9, is breathed out by God. God spoke it. God spoke it. When you speak, breath comes out. And profitable for teaching. Romans 9 is profitable. It's profitable for learning God's word, for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, here's what I'm trying to say. Romans 9 is focused on divine sovereignty and unconditional election. We should not try to make Paul discuss or balance what he has chosen to emphasize under divine inspiration. See, here's what happens. We want Romans 9 to read like Romans 10. But Romans 9 is not Romans 10, or else it would have been Romans 9. Okay, you you, you got the idea. My point is this. In Romans 9, he's focusing on God's sovereignty. Don't try to balance that, because that's what God inspired him to write about. You say, well, I want to see more of human responsibility. Then read on to Romans 10. And let me say this. In Romans 10, Paul's focus... The focus of the word of God is man's responsibility. Those who have a high view of sovereignty should not try to make Paul focus on sovereignty in Romans 10 if that's not his focus. What has been written has been written according to the will of God. Now, here's what I want you to do. Picture Romans 9 and its emphasis on divine sovereignty as a tightrope stretched across the twin towers. What's going to happen if we try to make Uh, take that tightrope in a different direction. 
What's going to happen if we try to do that? Okay, I'm going to get out on that tightrope, and then I'm going to try to make it go in a different direction. First of all, is that tightrope going to move? No. What's going to happen to us? We're going to fall. Just as sure as if Petite had went out there and said, you know what, I think I'm going to whip this thing over to another building. The rope would whip him. And that's what the Word of God does. We're going to fall off to our deaths theologically and spiritually. Romans 9 is like a tightrope that God has sovereignly stretched out from us to him, or rather from him to us. We are to walk across that tightrope to better understand him and his purposes. If we begin to try and make that rope go in a different direction than what he has revealed, we're going to be the ones to suffer, not him. Now, Romans 9, dropping this. Romans 9, 30 through 33, where we left off last week. You can turn there. Romans 9, 30 through 33, where we left off, is a pivot paragraph. It's the paragraph where we finally saw man's responsibility. It's the paragraph where we finally saw human responsibility. But what I want you to just see on that is it is a pivot paragraph. It, it's tied to Romans 9 because look, what's the first phrase says? Verse 30, what shall we say then? What shall we say then? And the conclusion he draws is this big emphasis on sovereignty does not eliminate human responsibility. But then it's a pivot paragraph in that it sets us up for the rest of chapter 10 where he's going to focus on human responsibility. And, you know, if you're a champion of human responsibility, you're going to say, oh, good. But you're not going to be happy in Romans 10 because you know what happens with human responsibility? We fail is what you're going to find. We reject God. We reject his son. We reject his word. When our wills are exercised, there is only one choice that we, in, we, we ultimately make, and that is to reject God. So that's what we're going to see in Romans 10. Now, here's the second point um, that you have there in your notes. First, Romans 9, 30 through 30 is a pivot paragraph that moves from God's sovereignty and unconditional election to human responsibility in chapter 10. The second is this. We should not try to make Paul say something in chapter 9 that he's waiting to say in chapter 10. And let me say this. Nor should we try to make him say something in 10 that he's already dealt with in 9. Now, this is what I've tried to do in our teaching. You'll have to be the judge to see Uh, You'll have to be the judge if I have maintained the balance of the text, whether I stayed on the tightrope of the text. But remember that the balance is the balance of the text, not what you've been taught, not what you've always thought, not what you would prefer to read. The the balance is what the text says. Now, I'm going to read a quote from John Calvin. He's a champion of God's sovereignty. Uh, And in some positions, he's too extreme. But on this, he said something very good. And here's what he says. Let us, I say, allow the Christian to unlock his mind and ears to all the words of God which are addressed to him, provided he do it with this moderation, that whenever the Lord shuts his sacred mouth, he also desists from inquiry. The best rule of sobriety is this, not only in learning, not only in learning to follow wherever God leads, but also when he makes an end of teaching to cease also from wishing to be wise. Now, there's some good stuff. It's a little older language, I understand. But here's what he's saying. When God shuts his mouth, we should shut our mouth. He's saying this. 
Follow God's word as far as it leads, but when the word of God stops, don't wish to be wiser than the word of God. And that's what gets us imbalanced in this area. Because we, first of all, we struggle with following it as far as God's word takes us. Because it takes us to places that are unknown, uncomfortable, and intimidating to our human understanding. But then once we get to that place, then the temptation is to go beyond what the word of God says and to fill in all the blanks, connect all the dots that God doesn't always fill in and the dots that he doesn't always connect. That's just human nature. And you've got to resist those temptations, both of those, in order to stay balanced. So that's number one. That's number one. How to stay balanced. Let Paul focus in Romans 9 on what Paul has been led by the Spirit to focus on. Number two. Number two way to stay balanced in Romans 9. Do not eliminate divine sovereignty in the unconditional election of individuals to salvation from chapter 9. Do not eliminate it. Now, let me show you. There's three words in that principle that I want you to uh, circle. Circle unconditional. Unconditional. Versus conditional. Second word I want you to circle is individuals. Individuals. Versus groups or nations, okay? The second word I want you to circle is salvation. Versus service. What I mean by that, salvation by God, God saving us, versus service for God. Now, that right there is what I believe are the choices we have to get imbalanced in Romans 9. Because here, here's, what, here's what I'm trying to do. What I'm going to start today is showing you how the one extreme of eliminating God's sovereignty from this passage. That's an extreme. Then, next week, we'll finish that, and next week, we'll look at the other extreme of trying to eliminate human responsibility from the passage. So we're beginning with sovereignty because that's what we struggle with most now here's how you eliminate god's unconditional election of individuals for salvation from this passage you say well it's not unconditional it's conditional it's based on uh, god's foreknowledge i god knows ahead of time who will choose him you eliminate individuals by saying this isn't about individuals he's just talking about israel he's talking about gentiles it has nothing to do with you and i as individuals our choices are secure the third way and this is the ultimate way you eliminate unconditional election of individuals for salvation you say this doesn't even have to do with salvation in the first place it totally has to do with choosing particular groups or individuals for serving God in special ways in salvation history. And what I'm going to show you is, first of all, if you take these three conclusions, then you can read Romans 9 quite easily and say, hey, it has nothing to do with my salvation. It has nothing to do with my individual choices 
and it has nothing and it's it's ultimately not saying it's ultimately uh, not eliminating uh, my choice of Christ in in the long run. Okay. now what we're going to do is we're going to go through that and show you that. Can't say Romans nine is conditional if you're going to stay on the tightrope of the text. You can't say that it's only about groups and nations. And you can't say that it's only about service to God. All right? Does that help? Are you totally lost now? Are you halfway there? All right? Hang in there. Hang in there. Let's take a look at it. Three ways people attempt to do this. First of all, number one, they attempt to see only corporate election. They attempt to see only corporate election in the passage and not the sovereign choice of individuals. And here's what they claim, and I have it in your notes. They claim Paul's only concern is with groups of people in the chapter and not individuals. Now, we said earlier in this series, why would people want to do this? Why would people, here's the one that we're focusing on. Why would people want to make this about groups and not individuals? Why would they want to say God is sovereignly choosing groups of people rather than he's sovereignly choosing individuals? Do what? It eliminates accountability. Okay, that, that could be one reason. And again, I don't know what people's motives, you know, I mean, but these are just, yeah, these are reasons. What else? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, on all of these uh, both, uh, not so much this one, conditional, but this is, both of these are in and both of these are in. But the priority is these. But why would you want to pit, if, 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 let's say God's choosing groups of people, whether it's for service or salvation, why would you feel more comfortable with groups rather than individuals? Do what? It's not as personal. Yeah, what it does is, well, there's still room for me to make my choices, okay? Because basically what they end up saying is this. God chose anyone who believes in Christ. I'm choosing a group of people to believe in Christ. And anybody that believes in Christ is in that group. So what would get you in that group? Your choice to believe in Christ. But if God is saying in Romans 9, I choose those who will believe me, then whose ultimate choice is determining that? It's going to be God's. So by pushing in his group, plus if God chooses one group and another, he doesn't choose another group and that group goes to hell, it's easier to handle that than to think he didn't choose my grandma. He didn't choose my dad. He didn't choose that person I so respect and admire for their moral way of living. It's easier to handle, okay, the Canaanites didn't make it in. I don't know any Canaanites. You know, those people off in some other country, they didn't make The Jews. You know, I don't know a lot of Jewish people. That's one reason why they do it. And so what they say is he's only dealing with the nation of Israel as a nation, not with individual Jews. He's only dealing with the entire group of Gentiles, not individual Gentiles. Here's how one guy put it. This, this, this view is put this way. God predestines the plan, not the man. God predestines the plan, not the man. He predestined that all who believe will be saved, but he doesn't pick who will believe. He predestines the plan, not the man. 
I would put forth to you that we'll see in Ro- we have seen in Romans 9, he predestines both the man and the plan. All right? So now we need to prove that. Let's look. The text will not let us eliminate God's choice of individuals from this passage. Let me give you three reasons, and that's all we'll, we'll have room for today. Number one, Paul repeatedly refers to individuals by name. I'm just telling you. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Ishmael by implication. He's never stated, but he's referred to. Rebecca, Jacob, Esau, Moses, Pharaoh. But here's the kicker. Look at verse 24. Even us. Even us. Now, if you were sitting, the, uh, you were sitting in the church of Rome, and he said, "Even us," what would you immediately think? That includes me. I'm an individual. So, no matter how much he chose the church, you know who would believe in the church. I'm part of the us, and I hope you here this morning are part of the us, even us. And notice what he says in verse 24: "Even us, whom he has called." Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. There's your two groups. But who is he calling out of those groups? Tell me the answer. He's calling individuals. He's calling individuals. So, Paul repeatedly refers to individuals by name. In fact, you say, well, yeah, but when he says even us, he's addressing the church. Well, go to Romans 16. In Romans 16, Paul individually addresses individuals in the church. And I want you to look at one individual in particular. Look at Romans 16, verse 13. Romans 16, verse 13. All I'm trying to say is even though he's written to the whole church, he still addresses them as individuals, and particularly a man by the name of Rufus. And as he goes through each individual and he greets uh, various individuals that he chooses to identify, he has little affirming words about them. And notice what he says about Rufus. Rufus, chosen or elect in the Lord. So, okay, you can talk about the church as a group all you want, but the groups are made up of what? Individuals, and he chooses individuals. He chose Rufus, and uh, he has chosen all who are going to believe. Number two, Paul uses singular words and not plural ones at key times in his argument. He uses singular words, not plural ones, in his argument. If Paul was just talking about choosing groups of people, the nation of Israel, Gentiles, the church, he would be using plurals in a way that referred to these groups. But notice what he does in 9.15. 9.15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on who? On whom? Plural or singular? Singular. On whom I will I have mercy. And I will have compassion on what? What does it say? On whom I will have compassion. Key point in his argument, and he uses singular. Look at verse 16. Notice verse 16. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Those are participles that are in the present tense they're active present participles that are singular not plural in fact uh, if you have your new king james bible it even makes it more individual and, and makes it more clear it says this so then it is not of him who wills but of him who runs but of god who shows mercy new american standard bible translation 
emphasizes that as well. So then it does not depend on the man or the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. If he's talking about groups, then he would have referred to groups at that point. But he's not. He's looking at individuals. Look at verse 18, another crucial point in his argument. Verse 18. So then he, meaning God, has mercy on, what does he say? Whomever he wills. And, and here's the hard part, pardon the pun, he hardens what? Whomever he wills. These are singular relative pronouns. They are not in the plural. And we could go on to, well, go to Romans 11, 1 and 2. Romans 11, 1 and 2. Because this is throughout. He, he, he's talking about both, but his emphasis is on the individual. Now, here's a great example. Romans 11, 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Okay, there's corporate. That's a group. And he's meaning there the ethnic nation of Israel. By no means. And what's the proof? I myself and as an Israelite. He's saying, look, God didn't gr- reject this whole group because he chose me, an individual. So there's the balance. Pat asked, is it both? Yeah, it's both. But the emphasis ultimately becomes choosing individuals to make up a group. Because let's see, go on. He says, I am a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, again, a group, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says? He goes on. But look at verse uh, 5. Skip down verse 5. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant. A remnant's a group. It's a small group, but it's a group. But it's chosen by grace. But how did he choose the people to be in the remnant? Who's in that remnant? Paul. How did he choose Paul? He chose him as an individual. You too are a part, if you have placed your faith in Christ, you too are part of the church. How did you get in there? He chose you as an individual. He did not just choose you as a part of a nameless group. And of course, Jerry just taught Ephesians chapter 1, where he says he predestined us in love. He knows us by name. All right, number three. While, unconditional, while the unconditional choice of the nation of Israel is addressed in these chapters, and I have various verses there that focus on the group, Paul does not address groups of people without also, and those are the key words, without also considering them as individuals, as individuals. Now, let me, uh, let me end with this. You have there in your notes... Three key passages. Notice the balance between both corporate and individual election in these key passages. The first one is at the very beginning of Romans 9, and this is important. Look at Romans 9, 1 1 through 4. Romans 9, 1 through 4. Here's a key passage, kicks off the whole thing. Is he talking about groups or he's talking about individuals? Let's take a look. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Here's an individual saying that he wishes, if it could be possible, and he knows it's not, he wishes he could go to hell to save those of his brothers who are condemned to hell. We're not talking about a group. 
talking about a bunch of individuals. And yet he can move right into verse four where he says, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites. That's a group. So you see that balance. Okay, move on. 924 through 25. 924 through 25. We've already kind of addressed this. There he says, even us whom he has called. And obviously the us that he calls, we're very comfortable with knowing those are individuals. And yet we're part of a group. And that group is the people of God, the church. And then 11.1, and I've already shown you that. So here's what I'm saying, and here's where we'll end for today. We've got to this. Next week, we'll get to this one and this one. But we've gotten to this. God's talking about individuals, not just groups of people. Now, here's what's interesting. Is those who are champions of human responsibility and kind of want to lessen God's sovereignty in this passage. One of them, who's the recognized leader and scholar of this area, he says himself, even though he doesn't see God's sovereignty the way we have taught it, here's what he says. I think Paul makes clear that election is individual. I agree that the Arminian doctrine of election is personal and individual. This view is more consistent with the overall theology of classical Arminianism, which are people that champion human responsibility, and with the biblical teaching himself. He says this, in, re- in fact, the reality of an elect group presupposes individual election. That is, individual or personal election is primary and corporate re- election is sen- secondary. Here's what I'm trying to say. One of the ways that we avoid the difficult doctrine of unconditional election of individuals to salvation is say it's not talking about individuals, it's talking about group. I've shown you three reasons why I see from the text it's about individuals and group. Priority on individuals. And then I just read you a quote from a leading champion of human free will and human responsibility who agrees that individual is the focus of the text. All right? So... How do you not go to an extreme and eliminate God's sovereignty from this passage? You recognize God's sovereign over us as individuals, not just groups. So that's, where, that's all we have time for this morning. We'll lead you, leave you off there. Uh, you say, man, my head, my head, my head hurts and my heart isn't bursting yet. I'm not at the worship area yet. That's all right. Hang with it. We'll, we'll, we'll get through this. And, uh, and, and and you know what? You might say, you know what, Chris? I just don't, I don't, why, why go into this detail on it? I, I don't have a hang up with it. I just accept what I've heard from God's word, what you've taught. I've seen it. I see it in God's word and I'm fine with it. Well, that's wonderful. But there's a lot of people that it isn't that easy. And I'm trying to help them see from God's word where they can stay on the tightrope and not go to one extreme. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. These are hard things. There are hard things in your word. You say that. Peter acknowledges that Paul taught hard things. But hard doesn't mean impossible. And so, Lord, let us exercise our brains. Let us exercise our minds. Give us divine understanding. And, Lord, we just don't want to be extreme in either way. We want to stay on the tightrope of the text. So I pray that we would leave here this morning acknowledging and comforted by the fact that God is sovereign over us as individuals. He knows us as individuals. He saves us 
as individuals. He chooses and calls us as individuals. God, you know my name. You know the number of hairs on my head. And as I lose them, you are aware that they drop into the sink and go into the sewers. You are that intimate and aware of who I am. That's humbling and it's somewhat fearful for I know what I am and I don't even know the worst of it. But you do and you love me anyway and you love each of your people that way. So we acknowledge your greatness today in Jesus' name.